everything leading up to 1998, both the sale that they had, but what they did leading up to that sale and how our friend from Yonkers, the late DMX, helped change everything for this label. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. You can't tell the story about hip-hop without telling the story about Def Jam. This label set the blueprint for so much of what we identify with hip-hop today. The music, the beat making, the fashion, the culture, so much of that originated from the vision that Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin had when they got this whole thing started nearly 40 years ago. And we start from the beginning. What led them to starting Def Jam? What were those early years like, especially as as it was this young, independent record label, gaining market share, gaining steam, and gaining validation? And then we talk about some of the big deals that they had, some of the executives and artists that helped make some of their late 90s success possible. But then we also talk about some of the lows. We talk about some of the tension that existed between the co-founders, the identity of what Def Jam is and how it can mean something different. But we also can't have a conversation about Def Jam without acknowledging the more recent legacy of one of its co-founders, Russell Simmons, and the allegations and accusations of rape, sexual assault, and misconduct that have been made about him in more recent years. In this conversation, I'm joined by friend of the pod, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, and we answer some of these most important questions. Who is the most effective CEO that Def Jam has had? What are some of the most effective and best business moves that the company has made? What are some of those missed opportunities and more? So come join us as we go back and dig deep into one of the most influential record labels in music. All right, I'm back with Zach Greenberg, and we are about to break down a company that's been on the list for a minute. We've been circling this one for a while, so I'm glad we're finally about to dig in to Def Jam. How are you feeling? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. I feel like we kind of talked around a lot of Def Jam stories on on, on prior episodes, but uh, there's like a whole bunch that I wanted to get into. So now we have the the whole episode to take. I'm stoked. Yeah, same here. The Cash Money episode we did, we started with this whole question about was Cash Money the greatest record label of all time? And I think we landed on both of us agreeing that Def Jam was, but the distinction that you made, which I agreed with, was that Cash Money better business, Def Jam, more influential, greater record label. And I think that'd be a good place to start. From a high level, why do you think that? And then I can share my thoughts too. Yeah, you know, and I think just it's kind of a basic smell test, right? When, you know, if somebody asks you what's the greatest hip hop label of all time, I mean, it it probably would jump to your, you know, I mean, maybe you throw out a bunch of names, but I think for most people, Def Jam would be the first name that comes to mind. It's kind of synonymous with hip hop. It was the first big, early label it you know it maintained its influence over many decades um and then you probably be like oh yeah but also cash money and then you start to go down the list and talk about some other labels but um you know i think just like the cultural clout the longevity you know that sort of thing uh puts def jam up top um but you know is it really the better business i mean if you look at the numbers that def jam ultimately sold for and we get into that as we go through the episode um you know i mean cash money i think has actually gotten a pretty comparable valuation um over the years and um you know maybe maybe bigger depending on when kind of take the snapshot um of course like you don't really hear as much about def jam artists not getting paid so you know maybe 
maybe that's part of the better, it's a better business for whom, but um, you know, there, there you have it. I mean, I think, I think with cash money, you know, it's like a pretty tight focus on, um, you know, a certain sound, you know, like in the early days kind of pivoted more, um, you know, in the, in the, the recent era, but like, you know, you, you kind of have like more of a, of a through line of, of what cash money is over the years and, and Def Jam, I think particularly, you know, over the past decade or two has, has lost some of its identity. It's kind of floating. It's, you know, a little bit adrift in the maze of the corporate record infrastructure, um, but um, but you know still relevant uh, and and it's got a lot of heritage to lean on. So yeah, I think I think that's the the Def Jam versus Cash Money. I I don't know. What, what do you think? Better business for whom is probably a good place to put it. But I I agree with the broader sentiment of if you're trying to tell the story of hip hop, you're trying to capture the journey, especially once you get past the early years of hip hop's founding and what really helped craft the art form to what it is. And this is I think is probably a good place to get into the some of the backstory here, Def Jam created what people identify as the modern record label and its founders had a big influence on what people consider to be hip hop and how people think about hip hop, not just the music, but all of its various extensions. And those two founders, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, I think it's interesting to look at what they were doing before Def Jam and how they got to this spot, how they got to this spot. So course, famously, the record label idea comes from Rick Rubin himself, and he's a student at NYU, and he's in his dorm room. He was really interested in rock music and producing and making music, but really wanted to lean into a record label, and he wanted to create his own imprint, and he really identified with a lot of hip-hop. But I think one of the things that he said that stuck out to him was a lot of the hip-hop at the time was much more focused on taking soul records or taking disco records and then rapping over them. That was definitely a lot of the Sugar Hill record style production, but there wasn't as much of the true beat making, the B-boys and the style and the aesthetic that was a bit more native to what people think about when you think about hardcore New York hip hop and that type of way, or even things like how a verse leads into a chorus and then you have another verse and then you repeat that chorus again, something that sounds so obvious, it really wasn't that. And I think that's one of the things that Ruben really helped craft, especially in those early years. Yeah, definitely. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it's such an unlikely pairing, right? I mean, you have Russell Simmons, who, who was kind of bouncing around the early days of hip hop, you know, helping elevate uh, some of the early superstars like Curtis Blow, um, you know, <laughs> selling fake weed on the side uh, or, or so he says. And, you know, like Rick Rubin, who's just like, you know, well, I don't know, was, was he a hippie back then, too? Did he have the, 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 the hair and the beard? I don't know. But he was, you know, this, this hard rocking college student NYU, like, you know, really into um thrash metal and stuff like that, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange mix, but I think that, uh, but like you say, it it, it really, you know, that's kind of the magic that created Def Jam and it, you know, I think Rick Rubin really did give hip hop a harder edge and, and, you know, weirdly it, I think it came from rock, right? It was that like rock, that kind of like metal sensibility that, that maybe, you know, kind of, kind of took the, like the, the flashy shine off a little bit of that, like sort of early disco rap era, uh, you know, that like the early kind of stuff that, that Russell Simmons 
was pushing and, you know, and, and gave it that a bit of an edge, which is, which is funny because, you know, hip hop, of course, originated from the streets of the South Bronx and stuff, but it did have that, you know, that disco element. So in, in a way, it was a, like coming downtown, getting the rock a, a aspect added to it that made it musically sound like a, like a little uh, harder edge. Um, and certainly when you start to see like LL Cool J and Beastie Boys, you know, it, it sounds definitely different from the the very disco inflected kind of early hip hop. So uh, odd marriage. It didn't, you know, it was, I think not the um, most harmonious marriage all the time, but, uh, but I think in the way that sometimes that's how you get the best creative work, you know, Lennon McCartney, or, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, even Jay-Z and Nas over the years, I mean, I know they didn't necessarily work together, but like pushing each other to, to, you know, uh, inspiring each other to, to create better stuff, you know, simply through their rivalry and, uh, and so forth. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, that that's kind of what you got uh, in some way from from Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. Yeah, and how these two met always sticks out to me. So they met at this party for this TV show in the early 80s called Graffiti Rock. It's this pilot episode that they were having and then they meet there and they knew of each other's work. Rubin was really admiring what uh, what Simmons was doing, especially at the time he had had Rush productions and he was having several artists on his roster and he was also wanting and Simmons himself he was the one that wanted to meet Rick Rubin because he's like oh who's the guy that was that, that made this record who's the guy that did this and then someone points to Rick Rubin and of course Russell Simmons sees him pointing to this white guy and he's like wait the white boy so it's this pretty common thing that we see where you see someone you're like oh this is who it is but they are able to figure it out and i think what stuck for simmons is that okay it doesn't make sense to have these two things separate meaning the record label that rick rubin's trying to start and the management and the production that russell simmons is trying to do so he wants to bring them together and then they get things going and then that's when 1984 they officially do start def jam recordings and Def, of course, as Rick Rubin says it, well, we'll get to this later, but Def being word to describe, okay, this is something that's cool. This is hip. This is what's up. And then jam more so the aspect of making the music and enjoying it. But it's funny because if you ask Russell Simmons, he'll say that Rick Rubin was more of the Def and that he was more of the jam. So um, they've always kind of had an interesting split in terms of how they saw things. And I think as you alluded to, we'll get into this, but how some of that led to some of the challenges that they have, but they were able to at least get the first few records off the ground, get things moving and things really start to change for them when they get the first big deal that they get for the record label is a deal with uh, CBS at the time through Columbia. They were able to get a six figure uh, production and distribution deal for Def Jam, and that then gives them the ability to then pick four acts per year. I saw some reports that said it was around six hundred thousand. I'm not sure how exact that is, but I do know that it was a six figure deal. And this is a landmark because this is the first time that a major record label at the time had done a deal with a hip hop with hip hop music in this type of way. Yeah, and it's it's a landmark deal for sure. But don't forget, you know, um, Russell Simmons was making moves like this you know, not just on the musical side in that period of time in the mid eighties, you know, you, you think of the Adidas deal that he got run DMC, uh, you know, bringing uh, the Adidas executives to the garden, 
you know, in a skybox. And of course, Run DMC goes out. They say, everybody, put your Adidas in the air. They, they put their Adidas in the air, 20,000 screaming fans. And then uh, Run DMC plays my Adidas. And, and that's how uh, Russell Simmons convinced these executives to give Run DMC a million dollar sneaker deal. So it's kind of interesting. You know, this is all happening around the same time, right? The, the music and the commerce, um, you know, with, with Def Jam, um, uh, with Run DMC, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And the first big deal that they have is with LL Cool J. They sign him. He has a song, I Need a Beat. And in a lot of ways, LL Cool J, you talked about this before, but he was the type of artist that they wanted to bring together. He had this vibe where they're trying to push him on to, do the street thing, especially with some of the more aggressive records like I'm Bad. And it had a lot of that production style and focus that we're talking about. But he would also do a song like I Need Love. He was trying to straddle a lot of the two of these. And that's why I think now when people always talk about the rappers that would sing and would rap as well, you always got to go back to LL Cool J because of what he was doing, especially at a young age. He was 16 when he first connected with these guys, taking the train up to be able to go connect with them and stuff. So, and at this point, these two are grown men. So it just shows that you have someone like Yellow Cool J, who's even as recently as now, um, recording this now in September, he performed on the VMA stage a couple uh, days ago, performing many of the songs from the same era that we talked about when he was a teenager. So it's fascinating to see how his career continued since then. And, you know, I think LL, in addition to being a really special artist, is just a really special personality. Uh, I say this, um, you know, in the context of like, I've interviewed, you know, I don't know, probably hundreds of musicians, uh, met multiple U.S. presidents. LL Cool J is the most charismatic human I've met in my entire life. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think the first time I, I uh, interacted with him was at a, like, um, he was pushing this thing called boom botics, which was a sort of like ill-fated, um, you know, like suite of, uh, of like music editing tools or something at the Sony headquarters. But like, I don't know, it, there's just something about like the way he walks into a room and just opens his mouth and, and people are just like, shoop. like it, it's not even because he's famous. There's just something about him. It's hard to put your finger on. And so I think you, you could really imagine how even at, at age 16, um, you know, if, if you have the sort of the beginnings of that sort of charisma that, you know, you, you could really um, kind of pull in somebody like, like Russell Simmons, who's, who's trying to, you know, find, find the beginnings of this label, like who's going to be my, my big kind of what some of my big artists going forward. And, you know, to, you know, I think he recognized that charisma in LL Cool J early on. And, and, you know, that definitely shines through in his music and, you know, certainly later he paved the way for his acting career as well. He had this energy where, as you said, he's someone that clearly had this unique aspect about him, but he was also malleable in a way at that point, just given how young he was. And I think that worked out well to their advantage because I remember Rick Rubin was telling the story about how he would tell LL Cool J, for instance, not to wear jewelry in certain music videos like going back to Cali because that's what all the rappers were doing at the time and he was always trying to be a bit counterculture i think that's something that is been on brand for rick rubin in general but then he also because he was early he was also seeing some of the challenges like anything that def gm had especially in those early days we know that they did have the success and i think the three big artists that they had at the time at least at the record label were 
LL Cool J, Run DMC, and Beastie Boys, at least early on. But I think they all came in at a different point and had a different journey. And LL was the one that saw some of those early ups and downs. For instance, when Russell Simmons is going around and trying to shop the I Need a Beat record, he's seeing how the industry still doesn't quite get Def Jam and the broader industry still didn't quite get hip hop. This was, of course, before they signed the deal, but it wasn't until Simmons then had his Crush Groove movie that he puts out after that people see that and they're like, oh, okay, this is what you were talking about. So I think a lot of that full package of how Russell saw things like whether it was, as you mentioned, the holding up the Adidas sneakers at MSG or any of the brand things that he did that we'll get into. I feel like that complete focus is something that did help Def Jam get off the ground even beyond just having the initial production deal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the same time, it was it was kind of this Wild West atmosphere uh, at the Def Jam offices. It was, you know, it was a startup, right? That's it, exactly what it was. And so um, in my book, Three Kings, I, I interviewed some folks about uh, the early days of Def Jam and, um, you know, including Russell. And uh, but some of my favorite anecdotes were from MC Search from Third Base. And he talked about, you know, just kind of hanging out in the Def Jam offices and, there would just be like piles of fan mail for Slayer who Rick Rubin had signed. And, uh, and, and then he would actually like open it and, and check out the phone numbers and, and he would call the, the fans pretending to be the lead singer of Slayer and, and just like thank them for their fan mail and all this stuff. So, you know, there, there was these kind of lighthearted parts of it, um, you know, and then there was kind of the shady side, right? Like uh, Paola was really big back in the day and, yeah, you know, I think in my reporting, people people didn't sort of like want to point fingers or anything. But, you know, it was known that if you wanted to get on the radio, you had to kind of grease the the uh, skids a little bit. And, and um, it, there were, you know, there were radio DJs making like 50 grand on the side plus from Paola. And I, I think that um, I think Def Jam was not, you know, immune from, uh, from from being involved in that either. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about Russell Simmons and... Um, Speaking of him as a businessman, uh, certainly a brilliant businessman, um, but but also very Machiavellian businessman. And, uh, you know, so I think that, that all kind of checks out on my end as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the interesting part, too, is that once you get past the labels starting and being formed, that's when things start to evolve because then you have the Beastie Boys being signed. And at least from a commercial perspective, this was the most successful group that they had had, at least in that mid-80s run, at least in terms of album sales that they had had. And a lot of people think of them, especially just given the success of the Fight for Your Right song and the album and everything tied up with that, but they were only at the label for two years. They ended up leaving in 1987 and they left for Capitol Records. And at the time, and I think still is, but at the time, Capitol Records was seen as the major label. So they almost looked at Def Jam as a stepping stone, almost in the way that, let's say, someone would look at signing with a independent label now, but then they end up getting a bigger deal at one of the big three or something like that, or uh, individual music distributor, and then they go on to sign a big record deal. So they were dealing with some of that. And I remember at the time, Will Smith had had this 
story as well, where he was trying to help Mariah Carey get a deal. Um, this was a little bit later in the 80s. And he was like, oh, I could get you an interview at Dub Jam. And Mariah was the one that was like, eh, no, I think I'm going to go try to talk to the Sony folks because this is what she wrote in her memoir. She's like, I view myself as the star here. And that's how she was able to, um, and it, I think it worked out for her just given the time frame and where the label was at the time. But this was some of the things that they started to deal with. And if you ask the Beastie Boys team or you ask others, this is when they started to see that there was a little bit of a difference in Def Jam in terms of what Rick Rubin had in mind for where he wanted the record label to go and where Russell Simmons and what Russell Simmons had in mind for where he wanted the record label to go. And it's ironic because at this time, Run DMC is doing its thing and they have the huge song that they have, the collaboration with Aerosmith, Walk This Way. But Rick Rubin actually um, wasn't, well, it's funny because there was some tension about that song because some folks felt like, okay, this is a great collaboration to help bring Aerosmith back. But others felt like, okay, well, you just gave Aerosmith this platform to then benefit from Run DMC, but how much did Run DMC actually benefit from that? So there was a bit of this back and forth, and that's a common thread that we've seen um, from a few times. And there was this memorable quote that Russell Simmons had had about why he felt like he and Rick Rubin eventually had to part ways. And it was 1988 that Rick Rubin decided to part ways. And his thing was like, well, Rick Rubin is working on Slayer and I'm trying to get Orange Juice Jones here. So he has the heavy metal. I have the this R&B soul act that I'm trying to push here. How do we have the two of these together? And they both felt like they didn't necessarily have the skills to be able to communicate this in that way. So they ended up parting ways. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I think it's kind of inevitable, um, you know, when, when you look at how different they were and what they wanted. Um, but, you know, they were together long enough to, to create that foundation for Def Jam, uh, which which really did mix that sort of rock sensibility, the hip hop sensibility and, and came up with something like that was kind of its own sound in a way. Right. Like you, when you talk about labels having a particular sound, Motown or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, Def Jam, without sort of being so methodical about it, ended up, you know, with at least you could you could kind of tell, you know, the, the types of acts that might come out of Def Jam. It, it wasn't just the same as every, you know, hip hop act that was coming out in the early 80s. It wasn't the same as every rock act, but but it really did have an identity. And, you know, through their differences, they created something beautiful. And I think this is where some of that identity questions start to come, because I think a lot of times we'll talk, people will talk about where Def Jam has been, let's say the past 15 years or so. And so, so some of the artists that have been signed and some of the identity differences there about, okay, well, is this label more of a pop and superstar place? Is it more of a hip hop or is it more of an R&B place? But this tension that Ruben and Simmons had had, even the 80s, highlights some of this ongoing, some of this ongoing identity where if you ask someone, is Def Jam more this, is Def Jam more that? Different people could have different definitions of it. And that, in some ways, is the beauty of Def Jam and what makes it so cool. But I think it also is why there have been these at different points, whether it's shifting identities where, I mean, no different than any other company, you have a different leader in place. And we'll get to some of this. They have their own different scope and their own different vision for where they take things. But that can change the identity of the company quite dramatically, especially when you're dealing with music and culture. Yeah, and definitely, I think when you get big enough, um, even if you had a particular identity uh, for your record label, you know, 
just by kind of by necessity, you have to just expand into, you know, whatever is big that is kind of related to, to where you were to begin with. So, you know, if you're Def Jam and, you know, as the nineties go on, you're just kind of like trying to get the biggest acts in hip hop on your label. They're, they're not going to all sound the same or they're not going to sound like Def Jam sounded originally. Like you've got to evolve if you're going to be sort of like the, the front, you know, the, the, the King Kong hip hop labels, um, you know, you, you can't just kind of like be stuck in the past uh, and, 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 you know, even if that's the sound that you were kind of known for. Right. And this in some ways ties to the cash money point we were saying earlier, where yes, cash money does have that identifiable sound and vibe where even if you listen to a song like number one stunner, you could hear a through line from everything they did in the nineties and then everything that they've done after that, even some of the Nicki Minaj stuff, you can still see the connection there, but again, a tighter run ship, but a smaller, breach of what it's trying to achieve versus this is a label that was we'll get to it but was acquired by the major labels and very much acted like one to try to work up and be at the same level as everyone else yeah and you know i think again like any startup at some point you got to have your exit right and um you know that that gets into into the involvement of polygram i think 1994 maybe skipping ahead a little bit but um Polygram bought half the label for $33 million in 1994, which, you know, in today's dollars, um, I don't know, I have to look up my inflation calculator. I'm guessing it's probably something like $60 million in today's cash value at 120, which, you know, it's like not a huge valuation and that's like a pretty big chunk of it to sell. But if you're a startup and, you know, you've been, you've been kind of working for a decade, almost a decade, um, you know, even if you're doing pretty well, like, you know, mo most of your wealth is coming from the equity and, and you want to get paid. So I think as you start to um, incorporate bigger investors, again, you have to chase that, that bigger pop prize we've seen with so many startups. It's like, yeah, this, this is a, you know, this is a nice like hundred million dollar idea, but if I'm going to invest in this company and I'm a VC, you know, I need this to be a billion dollar idea. I need this to, yeah, I need to see a path to 10 billion uh, if I'm going to be, investing now because because i, I want to you know 510x my investment so uh yeah i think like any business you know um even though it's a creative business you know def jam ultimately did have to keep growing in order to sort of satisfy um the the financial backer side of it and that necessitated just chasing the larger pop prize you know even moving away from its roots like each time you try to increase the growth and increase the potential, you have to reach another concentric circle of the audience. And that means pushing in, having artists that aren't necessarily there. And I think one of the things that heightened that deal was the journey that they had, especially late 80s and early 90s, because at this point for Def Jam, the two of these artists are, are Simmons and Ruben have split. Ruben is now off doing his own thing and Russell is still in charge of the brand. But at this point, Lior Cohen comes in and he had already been working on the production and management side. He was the tour manager for Run DMC. And then he gets more tapped into the business itself. And I think he actually starts at an interesting point because this is where a lot of the downturn for Def Jam was where by the late 80s, they're not quite as strong as they were. Beastie Boys isn't there. 
LL Cool J had had a bit of a dip himself trying to figure things out. The one bright spot was Public Enemy, but I also think that they probably got a little bit stuck there because they could have continued to have even more successful albums, even continuing on in the 90s. But I do think that some of the, they got a little bit mixed in the mix with the Def Jam piece of it as well. But by the early 90s, LL Cool J makes his don't call it a comeback, a comeback with Mama Said Knock You Out and that album. And then that then leads the way for this big deal that we see in, 90, in, in the early 90s with the Polygram deal. Because at this point, Def Jam was bleeding money. Lior has said on record that they were $19 million in the red at that point. And, he's, and he was pretty candid about he didn't think that he was doing the best job early on running the label. They were citing a lot of artists that just didn't necessarily click. He had had this quote, I think this is from a complex interview he did with, um, with Noah that was there. He said, do you remember the Afros, the family? BWP bitches with problems. He's like, I didn't think so. It was bad and I was scared. And I could understandably under I could I get where he's coming from, but boom, here comes Redman, and Redman ends up being in a lot of ways the saving grace that comes through in this time. So he's able to drop his what the album that was highly regarded. It didn't do as well as maybe some of the other albums at the time, but it paved off the way for all of his successful albums. And then that's when you get Method Man and Warren G and Onyx and that whole run. There were still other labels that were likely more influential in that mid-90s run. Of course, we've talked about Bad Boy and Death Row before, but this is where Def Jam really starts to make at least a little bit of that resurgence. It still isn't out of the clear just yet, but the momentum was starting to build. Yeah. And, you know, Polygram coming in, uh, buying half of the label for 33 million. And like we talked about it a minute ago. That doesn't seem like a lot, um, you know, given Def Jam, but 1994, it's like right before I think hip hop sort of exploded into the mainstream and then also got kind of, I think, toxic to mainstream brands with, with the East coast, West coast thing for a minute there. Um, so, you know, I think if, if this thing had happened, uh, well, well, you know, there was a, we'll, we'll see when we get to the, the, the late nineties, uh, Def Jam is worth, worth quite a bit more, but you may wonder like Polygram, why is Polygram investing in a hip hop label? It's this Dutch company. Uh, you know, actually the, the connection between, um, Polygram and Def Jam, or at least Russell Simmons goes way, way back to the very beginning. This is another fun story that I reported for three Kings. Uh, in 1980, right after the breaks by Curtis Blow came out, it, you know, it was a big song. It was a billboard charting song in the U S but it was also really big in Europe. And so, uh, they went out on this, you know, little run to, to, um, uh, the Netherlands and Russell told me like they knew they made it big when an executive from Polygram met them at the airport and, you know, Russell being Russell, <laughs> When the guy asked him, you know, what did he want? Could he get him anything? Uh, Russell said, cocaine and pussy. And, and the executive said, absolutely. And so, so uh, you know, Russell at least went way back with the Polygram folks. And, you know, I think um, as, as Def Jam evolved into like slightly more buttoned up operation, you know, uh, they, they maintained their relationship. And, um, and so I think paved the way. Uh, you know, for that deal to go through, but this was not some kind of like random thing. They actually had a relationship dating back almost a decade and a half at that point. So, uh, 
fun, fun little anecdote from, from the early days, pays dividends later on, perhaps. And I feel like that echoes something else that I had seen through my research about some of the tension that was there even in the late 80s with Russell and with Rick, because Russell had benefited from having these relationships and being able to sell this broader vision and being able to get the big checks to be able to do that. And we saw that with a lot of the multimedia expansion that he eventually had. But with Rick Rubin's initial split, one of the tension points that many people said was that when it came time to have the renegotiations of the contract with CBS at that particular point, Ruben was the one that had wanted to try to take a bet on Def Jam as a company and keep more ownership of the company, take less of the advance up front and see what they could do. Meanwhile, Russell wanted to try to get the biggest advance and the biggest check possible from the distributors. And I think that as well speaks to some of this, because if you're someone that is investing in these relationships with a company like Polygram, who at the time they were investing in Def Jam, but they were also doing stuff with some of the other record labels that were involved with hip hop and black culture music, whether it was with MCA and what they were doing with Uptown Records and Andre Harrell and some of the other moves. So there was something to be said for the people that wanted to try to capture this moment because there clearly are many ups and downs in the industry. And they saw this as one of the high ones, especially for black culture. But then we obviously understand how important ownership is in music. So that was an interesting distinction that I think carried through, especially since Russell was the one that continued that that mentality carried through with a lot of the ways that they made deals moving forward. Uh, that's a really interesting point. I mean, we always think about Russell as this, you know, uh, on the business side, this really a businessman. And, you know, in the context of Def Jam, Rick Rubin maybe being more of like the, you know, the, the, uh, the bleeding heart, the artist, you know, the, the, uh, you know, going to die for his craft kind of guy. Um, but in a funny way, you know, it was Rick Rubin agitating for, for what would have been the better business decision. Um, you know, of course, uh, I don't know what their exact financial circumstances were individually at the time, you know, uh, in terms of who, who kind of had more to fall back on or, you know, what, what have you, what their family situations were, but, um, you know, but certainly like, yeah, it is a bit of a dichotomy, especially when you think about down the line. Russell preaching, you know, being an owner and having equity and that kind of thing. And I guess Rick doesn't really talk about it that much or he doesn't, you know, he's, he's not super public. I guess neither of them are super public uh, these days for different reasons, but, um, but, but Rick Rubin has never really, you know, been running around talking about, you know, the, the merits of equity and he always, it seems to be more focused on music, but, but, uh, but I guess he turned out to be a pretty brilliant business guy as well. Right. Every interview that he's done, even that most recent even the most recent time, uh, not time, even the most recent 60 Minutes one that he had done, he's very much presenting himself as I am this exacting person when it comes to music. I know what I like and I know what I don't like and how he just continues that. And even the TV shows and spots that he's been in, he was on an episode of Dave, the little Dicky show, and he's doing his old Zen-like master thing. And he's like, oh, I have to go to the, I have to go to Rick Rubin. I have to go see the master himself to be enlightened. Like that's the whole vibe of it. Right. And he's leaned yeah. into that, even though he probably has just as many insights on how to actually run the business side of things. So yeah, I'm sure a lot of this is the branding there, but I will say that I think a lot of this probably in many ways leaned into how 
Russell Simmons operates and what works well for him because we've talked about all these entrepreneurs on these deep dive episodes we've done and it's most effective when they're picking businesses that line up with their mentality, with their perspective. And Russell did have this vision of, okay, how can I extend this brand? And we start to see, we obviously saw a lot of that in the eighties with the movies like Crush Groove and things like that. But we also saw it in the nineties because this is where you start to have deaf poetry jam and deaf comedy jam. So he's expanding these brands. He has these partnerships with HBO to then have these shows out there and deaf comedy jam ends up becoming the, ground floor foundation for so many popular black comedians that went on to have so much success after that. I often think back to Bernie Mac's initial sketch that he had had there. I think it's like a six or seven minute bit. Um, I don't want to repeat the things that he says on it because he could probably get canceled for it now, but it is epic. And it's something that explodes him into a stratosphere. I can remember Chris Tucker on Def Comedy Jam and so many others. And Def Poetry Jam continued its influence as well, even dating back to Kanye West, where years later, where he's literally reciting the lyrics to All Falls Down as this spoken poetry thing. And then it ends up being a huge hit that he has. It's been really cool to see how that has continued. And obviously, Russell did this in fashion as well, which we'll get into, but it was cool to see him build a company that I think did work well to his strengths. Yeah. And, and, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but uh, they were also able to cross promote and, and keep signing artists now also with, you know, some additional capital uh, coming in from, from Polygram. Um, but, you know, to keep signing the, the artists that, that we're going to, you know, keep them at the forefront. And so, you know, whether, I mean, you know, skipping way ahead to, to somebody like Kanye, but you know, that, kept them in the conversation and he put out the music and also showed up on Death Poetry Jam and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think they really uh, mastered the art of, of cross promotion and, and um, you know, that's definitely a big key to the success. The thing is though, the challenge with taking any money from different people is that they now have a stake in what you do and they have much more influence and they do things differently. And in the nineties, during Lior's tenure, we do start to hear more complaints about certain things. And there was a time that Russell was a bit frustrated with where things were going in the business, even after Redman and all of that, because there was a moment he had tried to get on the cover of Vibe or one of those magazines in the mid nineties. And he couldn't get on the cover. They wanted to have Puffy and Biggie. They wanted to have Suge Knight and Dr. Dre. And of course, this whole East Coast West Coast thing is taking over hip hop. Def Jam feels like it invented East Coast hip hop. And now someone else has the reins to it. So how do you navigate that? And one of the things that started to shift was that Def Jam started to see itself less as the label with the brand that's out in front and more as a label that can become the infrastructure for these other labels that have a bit more front-facing personalities and things like that to take over. We saw that more famously with the deal that they did with Rockefeller Records, but you also saw this with Murder, Inc., because Irv Gotti, of course, was an A&R on Def Jam and then went off to go do his own thing. You also saw this with Disturbing the Peace as well with what Ludacris had done and 
that started to work in their favor because they had seen some of the challenges. They had their own frustrations later on with Polygram and Mercury about getting promotion for their records. And they felt like they weren't getting the full promotion for the records because it was less incentivized for the folks at Mercury to push the Def Jam records as opposed to their own. So they're like, okay, how can we help build our own infrastructure and kind of tap into some of the challenges that we were experiencing. And this is one of the things that I think we or did really push there to say, okay, how can we, even if Def Jam isn't at the forefront of being all in the video, you still knew that it was a Def Jam record and that's what he was banking on. And I think that led to some of the later success that they ended up having. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it is kind of a pattern you see with successful businesses and in, in culture and particularly music. You know, when you have founders who came up in their early 20s and, you know, were really in the mix and could identify who was the next hot act they had to sign and figure out how to promote them in a, in a really intelligent way, um, you know, that, that, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, when you've been doing that for, you know, almost 20 years, suddenly you're, you know, you're, you're like our age, you're, you're, you're almost 40 and, uh, and, and, and you're just not going to that many shows. And, if you're Russell Simmons, by that point, you're, you're worth uh, quite a lot of money and you're living a very different lifestyle than you were when you were in your early 20s. And so not only do you not really know um, like who's the hot new act coming up, you're not really in a position to to even find them or notice them. Um, and, and you really have to hire people or, you know, in this case, acquire or invest in other labels that, that are younger, that do have their finger on the pulse. Um, and so I think that same eye for talent that you had identifying acts, you know, now you have to use to identify other executives, other founders who have that eye for the younger up and coming acts. And, you know, I think Def Jam did that really, really brilliantly. And, and, um, and in fact, many of the, of the executives who came out of Def Jam, you see going on to do that, uh, you know, down the line with, you know, whether it's Leo or Kevin Lyles, you know, going on to do 300, um, you know, some of the, some of the other, uh, kind of, um, endeavors you know def jam was always a really entrepreneurial place but part of it was spotting the next generation of entrepreneurs who could spot the next generation of artists and and i think that defined def jam's success in the 90s julie greenwald's another person you throw in that mix where had the career there and then you start to see or just have more success afterward michael kaiser there was a whole crew of them that were able to do it it was really fun to see if you love trapital you should check out what our friends at disgraceland have cooking up it's an award-winning music and true crime podcast with a brand new season all about Wu-Tang Clan. Episodes about RZA, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, fighting for their lives and getting involved in all sorts of stuff. Listen, if you know anything about hip-hop, you know that these are some wild boys. And Disgraceland does what it does best and it dissects and breaks down the stories behind the musicians that we've grown and loved. They've done deep dives and covered many artists like Fleetwood Mac, Tupac, Grateful Dead, Billie Holiday, Charles Manson, Taylor Swift, Rolling Stones, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Amy Winehouse, and more. But this season is the first serialized one that they've done on the full story of Wu-Tang Clan over 10 episodes. New episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday. Follow and listen to Disgraceland for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in this particular part about the 90s here, this is probably a good place to talk about everything leading up to 1998, both the sale that they had, but what they did leading up to that sale and how 
our friend from Yonkers, the late DMX, helped change everything for this label. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, and we've talked about this before, but when DMX was at his peak, I, you know, I don't think there's any artist that has ever been at at that level for you know, like sustained that sort of like white hot energy, um, you know, for for like a couple of years. And you know, I, I guess you could compare like modern day Drake to it, but there was just something about the intensity. Like DMX burns so bright, you know. Uh, even if even if Drake is you know, ultimately selling more or, or, or something. It was just, he's, he's a little more laid back about it. Um, it it's just amazing that, that, uh, that DMX was able to maintain that, that ferocity, um, you know, in addition to the commercial viability of, over that, over like a, a, those couple albums in the late nineties. So, I mean, you know, the, the prelude to, to, uh, the, the big, uh, Def Jam buyout is, um, of course, you know, Def Jam investing in Rockefeller in 1997, they buy a 50% stake. I think it was for a little over a million dollars. Great deal for Def Jam. Uh, but, um, you know, really kind of brings Jay-Z into the, the fold there. Uh, and, and so, you know, you think about like Jay-Z, you know, starting to become a, a commercial giant. Um, you know, his first album, obviously reasonable doubt, arguably one of his best, maybe his best, depending on who you ask. Um, Second album, you know, not, not so hot, but then he really kind of hits a stride commercially. Uh, you know, you've got hard knock life. Um, you know, he's, he's really thriving. DMX is thriving. They're bringing Def Jam, you know, to, to greater and greater heights. And, um, and, and so, you know, they, they end up in the situation. So 98 comes around. Um, Russell Simmons is in negotiations with Polygram to sell the rest of the label. Initially, they offer 50 million. Uh, he declines it. They go down to 34 million. And then he realizes that they're, that they're just trying to, uh, that they're just doing the valuation on a multiple of revenue. And so revenue, um, as opposed to earnings, you know, all you need to do is just sell more music. Uh, it doesn't really matter how much you spend on it. So Russell goes to DMX and Jay and he says, you know, two biggest artists on the album. Can, can each of you put out another out like two albums in the space of one year uh so that we can really juice this uh juice our numbers going into the sale uh both of them do and they both put out like incredible classic albums you know in, in the span of like less than a year um to two of them each and uh you know obviously they, they get paid the number goes up to def jam did a record 175 million dollars in billing and then in 99 Polygram bought the remainder of the company for 135 million, which is a hundred million dollars more than they had offered before this gambit of, um, of Jay and, uh, DMX. And, and Russell said, and this is a quote, he, a direct quote. He said, um, we sold it definitely because of those guys. And interestingly, he said, I thought DMX was greater than Jay Z. So, uh, there's a little, 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 little hot take, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think certainly, at his commercial peak, I think DMX was selling better than Jay-Z. Uh, you know, you could argue, I mean, it's such different styles, but, uh, but yeah, there you have it. I mean, you know, if it weren't for Jay-Z and DMX, uh, I, I think that, that Russell and, and the rest of those, um, Def Jam execs would have been a lot less wealthy than they are today. And I remember hearing that DMX got a extra $1 million advance to, drop that second album that he did in the year, the flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. Do you know if Jay-Z got a similar advance? I don't remember. Um, 
but knowing him, he probably negotiated something different, like some kind of back end thing. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing, but. At the time, I'd probably assume that DMX's advance or whatever he got may have actually been bigger because he was the more commercially successful artist, at least at that particular time. I bet that Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood, or even his third album, and then they were X, and, and then there was X, probably sold even more than Jay-Z's Volume 3, which came out at the end of 1999, Life and Times of Sean Carter, because both that went in and then there was X came out around a month of each other or so. And the numbers were the numbers are crazy. I know we talked a, a little bit about this in the Rockefeller episode that we had done, but it's one of those things where yeah, those guys got the advances, but was one million nearly enough? DMX has been on record to say, "Oh, I helped make Def Jam a hundred million dollars," and he's not wrong. And I don't know if DMX ever quite ever got a hundred million dollars, but again, it's part of the deal you signed, and this is why we do see more of these things. But I wouldn't be surprised if this particular instance is one of the things that reinforce things even more for Jay-Z to be like, okay, we did the ownership thing, that worked out well for us, but there's a whole nother level that I need to eventually get to that sees, okay, this is how much the work that I put in, I got this check, but then that leads to this massive sale for more money than I probably would have even imagined at the time. I don't really think that Jay-Z did some kind of backroom deal where he's like, all right, I'll do it, but you have to promise to make me the CEO of Def Jam few years. I don't, right. I don't think yeah. that happened, no. but I could, I could envision him thinking like, Hey, if I do this and make all this money for Def Jam and I, and I really kind of like show, um, <clears throat> you know, what I'm capable of doing in sort of like a leadership way, you know, this kind of builds my case for, for moving up the ranks, uh, you know, not just as a musician, but as a businessman. And, you know, clearly already he was starting to think about how he could expand his portfolio um, you know, of course, uh, and we'll get to it in a bit, but ends up being the CEO of Def Jam himself down the line. So, uh, you know, in a way, he, you know, like, I wonder if this move kind of, kind of helped, you know, make his case. I mean, I, I guess it was different owners ultimately, but you know, that, that having that kind of foresight, um, was the kind of thing that, that perhaps could serve you well in your candidacy for, for such a post in the future. And I think that this deal as well, it helped set up a few things. One, or before I get to that one, I do think it highlighted just the way that Lior was willing to think and push things. Cause I don't know if everyone that had been in that position probably would have made that same move because it was unthought of to have an artist drop another album so close at that particular time. It's Dark as Hell is Hot was still having singles that would have went through. And there's a pretty easy line to see where another executive could have said, okay, well, if we plan to have X drop his debut album, May 1998, you could maybe do another one, December 1999, which is when his third album was and not even have another one in the middle. And then similar with Jay-Z um, to a similar extent. So there was always a bit of the uniqueness there. And I think one of the things that Def Jam had also done was just how it thought about marketing. We talked a little bit about radio and payola earlier, but they, as well as some of the others, were early on thinking beyond radio promotion where, okay, how can we get street teams? How can we get the posters? How can we get the things out? And we obviously saw this perfected later on in the 90s with whether it was Loud Records or Bad Boy and others, but they were always pushing things. But I think the big thing about this whole deal is that it restructures things because it brings Def Jam under the Universal Music Group umbrella. And then the Island Def Jam Group forms. Lior then becomes president of that. 
And then Kevin Lyles, who had been with him during a lot of this time, then moves into the president role where he is then overseeing the Def Jam label. But still, technically, Lior is the one that's overseeing a lot of these other conglomerates. And this is where I do think things shift where we're now in 2000. The label is firmly leading into its stage of trying to take the back seat and let other labels come through and do their thing. But it's also the point where any of the ownership stakes or anything like that from original founders is gone. Like they made their money, they've cashed out, and now this is part of the major record label system. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but still you have that debt jam lineage there, even with somebody like Kevin Lyles, who had worked his way up from being a Def Jam intern to being the president within, I think, seven years. It's like one of the great hip hop uh, stories that is maybe not as well known as you know, some of the artist journeys, but um, Kevin Lyles making his, his way up in, in just seven years. So, uh, you know, you got you got him there. He was somebody who really understood you know, how you could empower um, artists, executives like Jay and Dame to, you know, to go out and, and sign the next wave of, of folks and, uh, you know, and to really embody the strategy that, that Russell had started a couple of years before the, before the big sale. And one of the big wins for him during his tenure was getting into video games. As we talked about, part of Def Jam's identity was always getting into different things. Russell had done it with the comedy and poetry in the 90s, but then video games was big. So, he was having this conversation with the folks at EA. They wanted to license their music for an upcoming Madden game. And he says, all right, well, if they're making all this money licensing our music, what if we actually get involved with these games? And it was the perfect combination of things where they had this dormant game. It was called, it was called Kung Fu Fighting, but it really didn't have a home. So there was a basis for this. It was this wrestling style game that they had had. EA Sports was the company that they were talking with. And this is the time where EA Sports Big was doing its thing and you had NBA Street. So there was a lot of the culture that I think aligned with it. And then wrestling was popular too, because this is at the peak of WWF's Attitude Era with The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin doing their thing. So them having this wrestling game was big, but they had eight months to do it. Just given the timeframes that were there, that's an incredibly short amount of time to be able to release a video game. But with people that are used to being able to spin up albums, as we've seen in a short amount of time, they're like, all right, we're going to do this. Let's make it happen. So they work with the artists. They get all of the ones to be involved with it. There, there's definitely a very um, interesting story. I recommend you check it out. OK Player had interviewed a lot of the folks like Kevin Lyles and even some of the artists and others that talked about it. But they were able to spawn that as a successful game. And they had a few different sequels after that that did quite well. And I think that was one of the things that stuck out. And every once in a while, you'll see things on social media go viral where people start tagging Kevin Lyles and say, hey, when are you going to make another Def Jam, Def Jam Vendetta game? Even though he hasn't worked at the company for over a decade now, but it's always funny to to see that come up. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to Def Jam's entrepreneurial roots, right? Um, you know, starting out with, you know, co-founder Russell Simmons, uh, you know, he, he was an entrepreneur from the very beginning days of hip hop um, and, and kind of coming up in that culture. I think somebody like, Kevin Lyles was empowered to be able to think outside of the box. This is not just music. This is poetry, comedy, and, you know, video games was kind of a logical next step. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, we, we talk about, you go back to the Def Jam cash money debate. Uh, I think Def Jam was able to succeed 
outside of music in a way that um, perhaps Cash Money was not. And and part of it was, you know, this sort of like very expansive entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly like having some institutional funding to be able to, you know, to, to, to go and do that sort of thing. But, um, but, you know, I, I think hip hop is entrepreneurial. Def Jam is hip hop. Def Jam is entrepreneurial. And, you know, it, it, it makes so much sense that they were able to go out and do that kind of thing. Because around this time too, Russell Simmons had officially left the company as part of this sale, but he was timing the market perfectly with Fat Farm and Baby Fat, brands that he went on to then sell for nine figure uh, for, for a nine-figure amount as well. He tied that well, so he was already leaning into this. We started to see his brother and the whole family have more TV shows and things like that. So they were doing the thing. They were checking all of the boxes. I think also, like, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the startup angle and how Def Jam really was a startup. But, it, you know, if, if you're a startup entrepreneur, you sell your company, you know, you're kind of – you're you're getting back at it as soon as your non-compete is up. Right. And, um, you know, or maybe, and I don't know the specifics of it, but if, you know, if you have a non-compete in music, you could just go right into, you know, into fashion or, or, or whatever the next thing is without having to wait. So, uh, and I think it, it, it you know, Russell Simmons, we, we, you know, if, if Def Jam is an entrepreneurial company, you know, it, so much of that DNA comes from Russell and, you know, you, you kind of can't help, going on to create the next business. He's, he's always got his eye on, you know, what he can, what he can conjure up that is different from, you know, different from, but kind of ties back to the original business, to the heritage of something like that. Jim. So that, that, that all does kind of square up. Right. And one of the things that stands out too about this era is that by the early 2000s, we're starting to see the CD era decline, but Def Jam is still doing its thing. These albums are still putting up numbers, whether it's, jay-z with his blueprint 2 an album that isn't necessarily maybe the most highly regarded but it was a double album and it sold a ton of records and it worked out quite commercially successful for them all the murder ink artists are doing their thing whether it's ashanti who was very successful at the time or ja rule of course peak 2000 2001 time frame and then ludicrous of course doing his thing with whether it's the chicken and beer album back for the first time um, the Red Light District, all of his singles from there. And then you have Kanye West coming too. But then you have this interesting moment where, again, some type of fracture or difference paves the way for an opportunity where we talked about our Rockefeller episode, the Jay-Z and Damon Dash split. With part of that split, it was it was uh, Dame Dash that went off and he had Rock for Life and was starting to do his own thing, but he had Cam with him as well. But then Jay-Z is the one who eventually becomes the CEO of Def Jam. And this was a big move for him. Interesting how it all developed. But I think his tenure in many ways was interesting because it laid a lot of the foundation for what he was able to eventually do with Rock Nation. But him being under the major record label was a bit of a challenge in terms of him being able to do all the things he wanted to do, but then realizing that there were many more people that he had to answer to. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a fascinating time, 2003, Jay-Z's at this kind of crossroads. I think he just started dating Beyonce. He was, you know, kind of moving into a zone where he was no longer just seen as a hip hop act, but he was kind of looking to the broader culture. And, um, you know, I think he, there was some rumor that he and Beyonce were going to go start 
something at Apple together. There was some thought that um, Edgar Brockman wanted to bring him over to Warner, uh, maybe to work with Lear Cohen, who was going over there. Uh, but in the end, there was this kind of game of musical chairs when Lior left. Uh, and I think L.A. Reid got bumped up a spot to take Lior's place. And then um, Lior, what was it, uh, Def Jam and L.A. Reid brought Jay-Z on to, to run Def Jam. And part of the deal was because there were other labels, um, you know, including Warner, that wanted him to be an executive. Uh, I, th- I think part of the deal was that they dangled uh, some control of his master's in addition to, I think it was a $10 million a year deal. And, uh, you know, so, so he goes over it. And of course, awkwardly then, uh, Def Jam buys out the rest of Rockefeller for like 10 million bucks. So suddenly Jay-Z is just like Dame's boss because now he's at the company. They're running the company that just bought out Rockefeller. Um, and so they, you know, that this kind of like finalizes their split. They go their separate ways, like you say. Although for a minute he had the, the Dame Dash music group or something within the greater universal umbrella. And, you know, that lasted like five seconds and before he, you know, he went on to do his next thing. So, you know, I think, yeah, this, this really, uh, the Jay-Z Def Jam era, uh, is the beginning of his transition from, you know, mostly artist to mostly businessman. And I think, you know, he, he gets like mixed reviews for his tenure. And I think there's some question as to you know, who deserves credit for the successes and, you know, um, Kanye and Rihanna and Rick Ross. And I think it depends who you ask. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, Jay-Z presided over, um, I-, I think, an extension of relevancy for Def Jam at a time when it, it you know, it, it could have really started to decline. And by, by kind of overseeing that period of time, Kanye and, you know, Rick Rouse and Rihanna. I mean, I think, you know, you could say LA deserves credit for them. Uh, you know, you could, you could argue that, you know, Kanye wouldn't have really been a recording artist anyway, if it weren't for Dane believing in him. And, you know, there's, there's a, a, a lot of cooks in this particular kitchen, but, um, but I think, you know, certainly transitioning from being mostly an artist to mostly an executive isn't easy. And the fact that Jay-Z was able to do it and be a part of that kind of success is, you know, certainly a credit to him. You know, it's like rookie quarterback in the NFL. Um, yeah, Jay-Z was an executive before with Rockefeller, but it was a totally different, you know, totally different dynamic. And, and you know, running a company like Def Jam, you know, that's that's you're in the league, man. And <laughs> to, to have any kind of success uh, off the bat like he did, I think... Um, you know, it, it speaks volumes to him, but also to Def Jam, you know, kind of like seeing that ability in him. Like, obviously now we look at Jay-Z, he's this billionaire many times over. Uh, it would be obvious that you should hire Jay-Z to run your record label, but like uh, it, it was probably a little less obvious at that point. And, you know, so credit to, to, uh, to you know, to, to the decision makers to, to put him in that position. It really is such a completely different job to echo what you were saying there. Running Rockefeller Records is more so Jay-Z is the big artist that we have. How could we structure the releases around that? But how can we make sure we give everyone else an opportunity to have different people featuring off of each other? And in some ways, there's harder aspects because you may be running a business that's independently, especially if you only have a production deal. But running one of these houses under a major record label, you're looking over the release schedules, you're managing this broader PL, you're trying to manage up and deal with these stakeholders, you're trying to compete with this other label who's 
also in-house with you as well, but you're all trying to essentially compete under this broader universal music island def jam group as well there's a lot of politics at stake but there's a lot of challenges too and one of the quotes that stuck out jay-z had done this interview with rolling stone shortly after he left the position and he said quote i told def jam how about this idea instead of spending 300 million dollars to break four acts out of 57 at the time he said why don't you give me a credit line and i'll just do things i won't make music i'll go buy some headphones or I'll go buy a clothing line and just be part of the culture. But the money scared them off because they're not used to thinking in that way. And he's absolutely right because that isn't how at least that type of record label was doing things. The closest you saw to this was what we talked about in our Interscope conversation where you have Jimmy Iovine and he's able to use Interscope as a testing ground and as many ways an incubator for what Beats by Dre led, but it's very different for the founder of Interscope to be able to do that under that same umbrella and the influence that he had at the time is a little bit tougher, even though it is Jay-Z. It isn't Russell Simmons that had been doing this for, for, for several years and it's just been up and up and up. Not all of these record labels are treated the same under the major record label system. And I do think that Part of that was him running up against the wall and seeing them do things like they're still pushing these legacy acts from the 80s and waiting on their releases. And a lot of that didn't necessarily work from that perspective. But again, I think he was able to see a lot of the vision for what he did want to do with Rock Nation, because that's where a lot of these same things he mentioned now he was actually able to do. And even in different iterations of that with different companies and, and different things over the past 15 years. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to note, you know, all of the uh, all of the corporate shenanigans, you know, going on in the background here, right? It's no longer just Def Jam is under Polygram. Now you have a merger. There's this whole reshuffling, uh, buyouts, and everything, and suddenly Def Jam is under the Island Def Jam umbrella, which is, uh, or, uh, I think Def Jam is under the Island. Umbrella was under the Island Def Jam umbrella, which is under the you know, Universal umbrella, uh, which has all these other labels and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just like a very complicated... Republic on this side, Universal. Yeah, yeah. That side. yeah. And, and suddenly you're just kind of, you know, lost in the shuffle a little bit. And you, know, you don't really have the ability to just go and do something like Jay-Z was saying. You can't just go buy a headphone line. That's exactly what he said. Like he would have done something. He wanted to do something like Beats. But he was just not empowered to do that uh, un under, you know, this sort of corporate umbrella, series of corporate umbrellas, if you will. And uh, I think, you know, I, I think that that entrepreneurial heritage that Def Jam started out with, like any startup, at some point, if you get bought up in like layers and layers and layers of corporate oversight, it just becomes very hard to do things in an entrepreneurial way. And, um, you know, I think that that speaks to frustration. Uh, and and I think that it, it is what really led to Def Jam being not quite as relevant as it had been in the past. And I think this next era that we're talking about that we get into the where L.A. Reid's tenure starts, he takes over after Jay-Z to lead Def Jam for several years. This is where I do think that a few things happen. One, you mentioned this earlier, but. A lot of the credit for some of the artists that did succeed at that time, there is debate on who gets it, but 
some people may attribute Kanye and Rihanna's success to Jay-Z. Other people may contribute it to L.A. Reid. I do think there's a bit of the evolution of where, depending on who you ask, in the Jay-Z timeframe, the label was still deciding, okay, is it going to be Rihanna? Is it going to be Tierra Marie? Remember that whole thing? Who's going to be the princess? And then now, or not now, but then years later, you have Umbrella and you see how that record's able to take off under la reed for that time frame but then you also have kanye becoming stadium yay and doing his thing and la reed's whole thing is how do we develop these superstars he does it with justin bieber as well neo was huge at the time too, doing his thing on the label but this is where things start to shift i think from a vision perspective because much of that late leor tenure and early kevin lyles and even early jay-z was much more of that hardcore new york thing that i think a lot of millennials and older gen x folks grew up with and identifying with def jam's culture and def jam's identity but then it shifts more into the superstar status where how can we compete with the biggest labels in the game how do we just get the biggest artists possible and yay was clearly a shift in this uh rihanna was clearly a shift in this and then even Jeezy and some of the other artists so you still had a bit of the mix but L.A. Reid's tenure was much more about how do we get the superstar artists. Some people definitely had some concerns from a branding and identity perspective, but the commercial success was there. But again, I think it depends on what your flavor is there. But I do think that the Neo piece is one piece that I do think gets a little forgotten there. But there were some successful acts to come from that era. Yeah, definitely. But I, I think especially with Bieber, it's like, wait a minute. I, I, I get that, you know, okay, Jay-Z is different from LL Cool J. DMX is different from the Beastie Boys, but Justin Bieber, like we're really, we're really going to a whole different range, uh, you know, more into the pop R&B thing, which I guess was sort of, Island was more, you know, in that, in that lane, but things started to get blurry. Like Def Jam was more of a brand in some ways and, Island was, it was Island Def Jam. What does that even mean? So, you know, you started to like mush things together in a way that they didn't really like have that much of an identity anymore. Um, then again, you can't really not sign Justin Bieber. I guess we guess they signed him through it. You know, it was never just that Def Jam went and signed Justin Bieber, uh, it, another complex umbrella of different labels and relationships and so forth. But um, at any at any rate, if you have Justin Bieber on your roster, if you have an opportunity to do that, you're not going to be like, "Well, you're not hip hop, so I'm going to kick you." You know, <laughs> you, know you, you do what you do what you can, uh, and, and and you lose your identity a little bit along the way. Um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think you can fault Def Jam for for sort of going in that direction when you have the chance to do it. Yeah, I don't either. And it's something I've thought about a lot because I think that if, even in past episodes I've done on this podcast, I've looked at it as a, wow, that was a diversion from the image. But even if we think back again, there was tension in the 80s where Russell Simmons had Orange Juice Jones and all of these other R&B acts that he was trying to push as well. But And then even with L.A. Reid, one of the things that he speaks publicly about often is his misread on Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga was signed to Def Jam. She puts out her demo. He doesn't like it, and he says, admittedly, he was impatient about it, and he dropped her, and then she signs with Interscope, and then her career takes off on Interscope after that, and he views that as a missed opportunity. But again, Lady Gaga isn't someone that necessarily may have fit that Def Jam identity of what we thought to be a Def Jam artist, but it did for L.A. Reid, given how he thought about things. So it was definitely an interesting time there as well. You also look at 
things that he had tried to do as well, whether I think he flew down to Belize to try to sign Shine at one point. And I remember that was a whole big media thing. So it was an interesting era. And I think a lot of people do have different opinions about it, but it's a fascinating one in this record label's history. Yeah. And, and with the Lady Gaga aspect, of course, she just got signed by a different universal label ultimately. Right. And I think it was Akon who was like, yo, um, <clears throat> Interscope, you should, you should, you should pick her up. And I think she was initially signed through his Interscope imprint, which is like, and you know, so he, there, it's just reshuffling under the same umbrella and, and people talk about it like it's very high stakes, but it's the same people getting rich off of it either way, ultimately at, at the tippy top. It's this whole, like the labels want to create the inner competition where even if you're running Def Jam, Def Jam is competing with Interscope, no different than it's competing with Atlantic Records to you as the label head. But you're all owned by the same team, right? Right. And like, you're definitely not going to get into a bidding war with another label under your same umbrella. Uh, I think that that would be, uh, that would really be frowned upon. Um, but, um, but maybe you'll pick up somebody who got dropped from the other one. Uh, you know, so, but it, I think it's, it's not as much of a tragedy for Def Jam. I mean, maybe it's a tragedy for Def Jam, but it, for Universal, it doesn't really matter. She got big either way. Universal got, uh, you know, got its coffers lined a little bit more, uh, you know, one way or the other. After this era, things start to shift even a little bit. You had uh, Joey Mando was in the role for a little bit, but it was very brief. After that, you had um, Steve Bartles was in the role as well. And then I think you start to see more of the shift where I feel like he tried to replicate some of that identity that L.A. Reid had had as well, where he's signing Alessia Cara, he's signing Logic as well. Um, but he's also continuing yay and having a lot of these big records that yay puts out as well. You have Frank Ocean, but then of course you have the whole entire drama where they weren't able to have blonde on the label because he then releases endless the day before. And then that whole thing happened. And then after that, you had Paul Rosenberg, who some of that probably shouldn't have been in that role to begin with, just because I think that this was around the time when you had a lot of people that were already multi-hyphenates doing their own thing. And he had Eminem. He was never going to give up having Eminem as well. But someone that I think was much more focused on how do I do the artist manager role? How do I work that to be as well as I can? And I don't know if, again, looking over P&Ls and looking through different schedules and things like that was necessarily something that he had focused on there. And then more recently, you have um, Tunji Balagun from RCA that had done a lot of the mix of both R&B and hip hop as well that I do think speaks a lot to the identity that Def Jam has had over the past 15 years or so, and he's still early in his tenure. But it's been very interesting to see how these different instances have lined up and got us to where we are today. I do think Def Jam, you know, in a way, when you have Jay-Z as your, uh, if you have Jay-Z running your label, you do feel some kind of pressure to have a name, you know, with every subsequent hire. Um, but as time has gone on, I think the executives running the show have been a little bit less famous and you know you, you kind of got to juggle do you want a name or do you want like a bean counter and, and i think def jam maybe can't quite figure that out there's been like a lot of back and forth on that but um but you know i think i think really we're we're increasingly we've talked about this on in prior episodes but we're in a place where labels don't matter so much right you're you're just not necessarily aware of who's on what label you're not picking up a, a record or a CD and, and putting it into a, 
CD player, record player, you know, you're not really seeing what the label is when you're streaming something on Spotify or Apple Music. And so I think it makes sense that labels are fading into the background in terms of their um, popular perception or, you know, their image, you know, what, what, what their, uh, what their sort of heritage is, what their identity is. And I think Def Jam is no different in the end. Although I think that Def Jam always means something in hip hop, uh, you know, to, to kids listening to music these days, you know, it, it probably won't. Maybe it's just for us old farts. And I think recently with some of the moves, they have leaned more into who is the best person we can find to run this business as opposed to the flashy names. Because if you listen to the word on the street, DJ Khaled wanted that position, especially when it was open after Rosenberg left and maybe even before they signed Rosenberg as well. And it didn't happen. Snoop Dogg wanted that position as well, but Snoop Dogg as well. He was signed on to be a consultant at one point, and then this whole death row thing happened. So that was there. Jeezy wanted this role as well and eventually ended up being similar in the Snoop Dogg way. There, you, you could be a consultant. You could do this as well. And then we've – so we've started to see this pattern time and time again. And then even times more recently, like the, the guy from um, Griselda, West Side Gun, I think he said himself, oh – let me be president of Def Jam as well, or let me be CEO of Def Jam. So I do think that the shift to Tunji was more, okay, you could see a track record of what this person did at RCA, and that's more so the vision there. So it's been interesting how they found ways to say, especially as you said, the label isn't necessarily this outward brand as much as it is this internal company we're trying to run almost in the way of like a, Paramount Pictures or something like that. And in the movie side, it's less of the name you need that is this like external, like that is always talking to the press and being in videos, but who's the person that can run the company? If we've seen these record labels, the record label CEOs that have been more successful, it started to be a little bit more like that in a way. We've moved a bit more away from folks like your Jimmy Iveens and it's a bit more of your John Janik, someone who really doesn't do as many outward interviews like that, but is highly regarded in terms of the work that he does or folks like the Littmans who I think people outside the music industry probably don't know, but if you're in the industry, you do and things like that. So I feel like that's where some of the more recent shift has gone. Yeah. But at the same time you have labels like quality control or 300 or, you know, some of the labels that have come up over the past decade or so, and, you know, you, you do have sort of like charismatic founders, you know, who are fairly well known, um, who are kind of out there more. And, you know, and I think that's what you do if you're that kind of a founder, if you're that kind of executive. Whereas, you know, maybe the type of folks who would be more drawn toward running um, a label that is now nested under several other labels in, in a giant conglomerate would be more bean counters. But then again, of course, there's the prestige. And that's why you have the Snoops and the and the Khaleds interested in it, uh, interested in it too. And, and you know, I think that's a lot of it is sort of the the uh, afterglow of Jay Z being there, right? It's like this really prestigious thing, and he's sort of the the prestige name, the number one prestige name in hip hop. So, you know, that has left a certain shine to that position, and, and you know, probably always will as long as Def Jam is out there putting out music. Maybe the distinction then is the independent labels that are coming up doing their thing versus the 
ones that are in-house part of the major system already, right? Because like, you know, Def Jam's been part of the system for like 20, 20 plus years now. But if you're coming up in your quality control, you're coming up in your 300, you do need a showman to some extent to sell the vision in a way where it's less that from that particular way. So maybe that's the distinction here. It's still Absolutely. beneficial to some ways, but you see it a bit more on the independent side. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. With that, I think it's a good time to get into some of these topics here. What do you think is the biggest signing that Def Jam did in its history? It's a tough one, but I think I'd probably go with LL Cool J. Um, just, you know, to start off with that kind of a bang, to have, you know, uh, an artist who was rooted in the very early days of hip hop, uh, who kind of grew with the label, helped the label grow, the label helped him grow this great symbiotic relationship. Uh, you know, hip hop legend, been there, you know, for you know, consistently putting out music more or less. I mean, I know he's been more in, in the uh, uh, Hollywood world, you know, for, for, for the recent um, couple of decades. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, if I had to think back, like, would Def Jam have been Def Jam without any one artist, I think uh, LL Cool J is the first one that comes to mind of like the identity of the label and, and it all kind of grew out from there. Yeah, he's my answer too. I think it has to be him. He set the tone. He hit that hybrid that we're talking about that was part of this label's identity for a lot of time. He's always stayed close to the label to to some extent that I think has worked well with him. And then even as recently as uh, two, three years ago, I forget when the exact date was, but he re-signed with the record label. And I know that he wants to continue to put out music and do everything he's been doing there. I think there's other artists you can make a case for in particular ways, just to kind of highlight some honorable mentions here. Of course, Kanye's continued relevancy with the record label the past 20 years has clearly been influential for them. As you talked before, Red Man, even though he was never the biggest commercial artist, I think was very pivotal at the moment that he came, just given things that Lior has shared as well. And then DMX during the late 90s was just a, another level of success as well. I think Rihanna is another one, too, that you could put into that same category just in terms of how she was signed to the label when literally every summer she was releasing an album from, what, 2005 up until she started working on Fetty Beauty, right? And they were able to reap the rewards from a lot of those. Uh, which Def Jam CEO did the best job? Oh, well, uh, I was going to say this one's kind of, I think the obvious answer is, is Russell, um, because if he didn't kind of get it off the ground, then none of the rest of the stuff would happen. That's kind of a boring answer, but that's my answer. No, you, you could always that. I, I hear that. Yeah. It's like the LL answer is like maybe a little bit boring. You could make a case for others, but you know, if you kind of don't start the thing, if you don't have the idea for the thing, you know, give the thing the identity, it's not going to be so easy for, for anybody else to come on and, and, and do a good job with it later on either. The case for Russell uh, with a number of reasons is that one of the reasons why people have so many strong opinions about what Def Jam is or should be is because of, how he was able to build things, how he was able to craft things with his vision and what deaf meant, whether you put it in front of different things and how he's able to extend the brand. So I get that. The one I'll say, and I, I want to preface this before I get into mine, because I reached out to a few people who I respect in the industry to get their opinion on this same question. Everyone gave me a different answer. Huh. And it's, it's fascinating because I think it highlights a lot of this topic where 
people have a different idea of what Def Jam is or what Def Jam should be, depending on who you ask, depending on what era they romanticize and all those things. So that's one thing that stuck out to me. And people that you know, know the business and were in it. And my answer is Lior because I think he was able to see the record label in so many iterations. He was able to see it in its downturn and take over in its downturn and being able to help bring the label back from that, especially when you're $19 million in debt is huge. I think he was also able to see how do you get this independent label, kind of like we we're saying a few minutes ago about QC and some of these others now, how do you get this independent label to then be something that you can then sell for nine figures and have multiple sales where you have the initial polygram deal. And then five years later or four or five years later, you have the UMG deal. And even just the thought around pushing X and pushing Jay-Z as hard as you did to say, hey, these are the two artists. This is what the street needs. Let's run this back and let's maximize this from a business perspective because you see that this company is doing things on revenue multiples instead of other metrics. There's other people that I think you can make a case for, but I think I, I think he's the, the the guy. So yeah, it's hard to invent something, but it's even harder in some ways to reinvent something. And and he certainly did that, right? I mean, it, it could have gone a totally different way. Uh, if, if he hadn't kind of pulled it back from the brink and yeah, I mean, certainly he, he got a lot, uh, a bigger number, you know, for, for, for that deal than I guess it was Russell still running the show with poly, when the polygram deal, uh, the first half in 94, um, or was that LDR or two? I don't know. Anyway, um, did you remember? Yeah. Oh, so with that, Lior was the CEO of the company at the time, but Russell was chairman. So he was still quite yeah. involved at the time. Even to go from selling half of it to 33 million to selling half of it for, you know, 133 million, 135, whatever it was, all as under, you know, all under your own tenure. I mean, that's, that's like quite an evolution. So good, good point on that one. Yeah. Hard to argue. I was thinking about asking you who was the least effective, but I said, no, I'm, I'm, we don't need to, (laughs) we can, we can leave that where it is. Um, this question, this question, uh, who is the most influential for each decade, each decade? I guess we already did that in the 80s since we both said LL Cool J was the most important signing there. But who would you give it to in the 90s? Oh, DMX, definitely. Uh, I mean, again, it was a pretty concentrated period of time, but just like that level of concentration of, of, um, lyrical firepower and, and just intensity, uh, you know, and I think really driving even more than Jay driving that sale number. I think I got to give DMX. How about you? I mean, we probably may be similar on these, but yeah, it has to be him <laughs> for, for those same yeah. reasons. Uh, 2000s. Uh, 2000s. I think I would go with Kanye. Um, okay. Right. Because that was like basically all of peak old Kanye happened under Def Jam. And, you know, uh, I think both in terms of him being the evolution of Def Jam's identity, um, you know, what it was building up to, obviously not, not so great right now, but, uh, but, you know, but, but really like, you know, I think Kanye perhaps being the most significant artist of any genre of the past, you know, 20 years. I mean, he's certainly in the conversation. Kanye, Kanye's a good answer. I think I'm going to give mine to Rihanna and I'll give it to her because once she started, it was consistent. It was reliable. It was there. I would have to check the sales numbers to see how well Good Girl 
Gone Bad did compared to Graduation, for instance. I think those were both the same year. But I think I think those are the two strongest ones you had that decade by far. And this is probably where it gets more interesting, though. What would you say for 2010s? I mean, I guess you kind of have to say Bieber. Um, you know, he wasn't, again, he wasn't like somebody who just came to the front door, Def Jam decided, this is kind of complicated umbrella. But, you know, if you're listing him as one of your big artists, um, you know, it doesn't get much bigger than Justin Bieber. And, uh, you know, even though he didn't really quite match the Def Jam identity, he was super significant, sold a ton of records. And, um, you know, I mean, he's under the, the umbrella. So I'd probably have to give it to Bieber. Yeah. I wish I could say Frank Ocean here. I wish I could. Mm. I can't because there wasn't enough output and the masterpiece blonde that he put out wasn't even on Def Jam. Right. <laughs> right? So you can't say him. Bieber is the most successful they've had. I mean, that record that Sorry was on was huge. That has to be one of the yeah. biggest albums that Def Jam had this entire decade. I think Logic was another artist on the album on the roster that was commercially successful as well. I forget what his current deal status is right now. I think he may be off the label and doing his own thing at the moment. But yeah, I think it would have to be. I think it would have to be him. Dark Horse. Do you think it has to be Bieber or, or Logic? Oh, oh, if I had to pick, oh, I would pick. I'd still pick Bieber because I, okay. I, I think his records are still bigger than. Yeah, I think I think that album that like Sorry and you know Love Yourself were on. Uh, I think it was called Purpose. Justin Bieber Purpose. That album was huge, and you know, and I think he has the most. He's the he's the one of the artists with the most billion stream songs on Spotify, either himself or featured. It's at least ten of those songs, which is more than anyone else. So. I know that he's had some trouble on the touring side and things like that. And of course, drama with uh, master's ownership and management right now. But on the commercial side of the record, he does put up streaming numbers. And that's the side that a record label is concerned about, at least. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like the logic call out, too. A dark horse business move that doesn't get discussed enough from Def Jam. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to combine this with biggest miss. Um, I'm going to say, uh, signing Jay-Z, it, it, it is both a dark horse business move that doesn't get discussed enough. And it's a big miss. So when Def Jam signed Jay-Z to be CEO, uh, right. We talked about this. Jay-Z's tenure has gotten mixed reviews who really deserves credit for the signings, whatever. But I think just simply by having him be CEO, um, in the early aughts when he was early to mid or mid, mid to late aughts when he was CEO, uh, extended Def Jam's relevance for years, maybe decades. The fact that we're still talking about Khaled and Snoop wanting to be CEO of Def Jam potentially, or, you know, they did or they do or whatever. Again, I go, I trace that back to Jay-Z and, you know, as long as you have, uh, A-list artists kind of craving that position. It means that there's still a shine um, from when he was there. And I think that alone, regardless of whatever decisions he made, uh, gives Def Jam, you know, kind of a um, an ongoing viability that it might not have had. Who knows? I mean, the brand was pretty strong, um, but I think having Jay-Z's luster on it has extended it, I think, for, for a pretty long time as well. At the same time, I think that was the the biggest miss kind of came with hiring Jay-Z as a CEO and, you know, not really empowering him to do the things that he wanted to do. 
And if you look what he did right after, like you said, he started Rock Nation. He went to Live Nation, a touring company to do it. Uh, it he could have totally done that through Def Jam. Um, he could have really, you know, pioneered um, a model within within the Def Jam umbrella, within the Universal umbrella. Uh, maybe not pioneered, but he could have extended the, the model where, where, you know, the 360 model, you get a piece of the touring, um, you know, you're, you're doing other things, you're doing something like a Beats by Dre. And if they had really empowered him to do it in the way that Live Nation has, which is, you know, do a joint venture, give him a credit line, you know, uh, and the resources to really like um, put his genius to work. Uh, you know, I think, I think it could have been a whole different story for this next chapter of Def Jam. That's a good one. And huge missed opportunity, like you said, because the labels could have done this because remember at this time, that's when people were trying to figure out how do they get the most of what they can do in the CD era? How can they figure things out? And it actually reminds me Rick Rubin when Rick Rubin had of this quote from ended up having his job at Warner because he talks about where music should be going at the time. And at the time, Steve Bartnett, he wanted Columbia to have their artists essentially do these massive deals where they get a piece of the tour and they got a piece of the merchandise, the online revenue, the whole 360 deals that you saw. So this is at the same time when people were trying to push these deals. And even as early as 2007, Rick Rubin was one of these people that was pushing the record labels to try to do online subscription-based music streaming. And his quote was, quote, you could pay $19.95 a month and the music could come from anywhere you like. In this new world, there'd be a virtual library that we could access from your car, cell phone, from your computer, with your television, anywhere. The iPod will be obsolete, but there'll be a Walkman-style device you could turn your speakers and say, hey, now I want to listen to Simon and Garfunkel and the service can have demos, bootlegs, etc. And the industry will grow 10 times the size that it is now. So that's a quote that he was saying then and people thought that he was crazy. Remember, Steve Jobs didn't think that any want Steve Jobs was against music streaming as a paid service but I highlight this because at the time the other popular sentiment was pushing these 360 deals and the only reason or one of the main reasons that Live Nation had done this 360 deals because the record labels were coming in on their corner trying to take a cut of theirs so they're like okay well Madonna you too you want to have a big deal I think the the first one big one they had was with Madonna for her nine figure deal and then they do the one with Jay-Z so the record labels, just based on where their thought mindset was, obviously streaming was something they weren't even music streaming, a subscription service. They thought you know, Rick Rubin was crazy at the time for pushing it. But if you were already offering 360 deals, you could have offered Jay-Z that Live Nation deal the same way that you discussed. Would they have offered him $150 million the same way that Live Nation did? Who knows? But they probably should have, right? Because Live Nation got a cut of um the albums that jay-z released after that like um blueprint three i think that was the first release that came after that deal and then uh watch the throne magna carta so there were a, a bunch of them there so i share that to say that's a really good call out and yeah it could have been that way for the labels and it wasn't it could have been def jam doing that deal instead of live nation and i mean in, in some ways it's hard to really fault them for that i mean that's almost like a you know a netflix pivot like why didn't blockbuster do that um, kind of thing. I mean, yeah, they should have done it, but it's like, it's hard to fault somebody for not sort of reinventing a category. It's, it's hard to fault somebody for not doing a, a brilliant thing, right? You know, they were just doing the obvious thing. They were doing a brilliant thing. 
it probably goes back to being under this very complicated corporate umbrella and it just is harder to do the brilliant thing. Um, you just want to not get fired, you know, for whoever's in the, <laughs> reporting up to the motivations yeah. are a little different. So, but yeah. And I think, and I think to your point too, I think it's a little bit easier for an events promoter to offer you an advance on your next album than it is for a major record label to offer you guarantees and events promotion services or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. The Dark Horse business move that I'll mention, I talked about a little bit earlier, but it was Def Jam's ability to take the slight step back and let the other labels on the forefront under its umbrella take the reins to some extent and push things forward. But the Def Jam brand still remains strong. Talked about Murder, Inc., talked about Rockefeller Records, talked about Disturbing the Peace and how successful each of those was with their own flagship artists behind that. And Def Jam reaped the rewards for all of that. You had laid out why it was so effective earlier. I do want to echo that one again because I don't think that that piece gets discussed enough. And for all of the times that people have tried to launch vanity labels or have different sub labels under them, especially in hip hop, it's this one and it's cash money, young money. And after that, I think that the list is slim of how effective these actually are when they do happen. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. To totally agree. Uh, and with that, close things out. Yeah. Who do you think won or lost the most from Def Jam? It's a really tough one. I mean, if, if you want to get kind of philosophical about it, you could argue that any number of artists who went on to become billionaires, Jay-Z, Kanye, Rihanna, got their platform in part from Def Jam for, for who won, right? But I'd probably go with Russell because he got all that plus, you know, a lot more of the proceeds every time the company sold. Um you know, it, it's maybe the easy answer, but uh, yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. You can make a case for Lior. Uh, he did pretty well. He, he went on to, to a whole bunch of um, lucrative and prestigious posts. Um, as far as who lost the most, I, I might say relative to what he could have had, I'd say DMX. Um, obviously, he he won a lot at Def Jam. He, he made a good amount of money. Um but, you know, I think if he'd played his cards differently, he could have made a lot more money. Um, and if you look at sort of those two cases of Jay-Z and DMX as two artists, you know, who were the hottest artists on the label and probably in all of hip hop at the time, um, you know, they, they followed obviously really different trajectories. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's hard to say. I don't know that he lost the most from Def Jam. He could have gotten more of the spoils for sure. Uh, but I think he could have also gone on you know, to benefit from the platform creator, which wasn't really Death Jam's fault. And, you know, I don't think it was DMX's fault. He just had these demons, um, rest in peace, poor guy. But, you know, I think that the DMX's commercial, you know, his business legacy, uh, nowhere near matches his artistic legacy. Um, and, you know, but maybe he didn't really care as much about the business side and, and he really did care about the art, uh, more and, and you know that's cool too I, i'll actually do jay-z for mine in terms of who won the most and i think it's for a lot of the reasons you mentioned him being in that ceo position i do think we talked about the impact for def jam but i also think it helped him as well even if there were mixed reviews about what he was actually able to do during that three four year stretch it benefited him everything after that and even the whole line of i'm a businessman i'm not a businessman like him being able to do that, saying that after or while he literally is in that role, 
um, on the Diamonds remix. And I do think that that is the most frequently mentioned hip hop lyric that I've heard since that came out just from people. And with all the things he's able to do since then, I think that works out for him. The person that I think, uh, the person that I think lost the most, this is dating back to earlier in the conversations, but I do wonder how things could have looked different for the Beastie Boys because Mm -hmm. they have this quick moment, not quick moment, but they have this stretch where yeah, fight for your right, and they're doing their thing there. They switched to Capitol Records. I don't know if their career necessarily was quite as successful, but then they do have this late '90s moment with Intergalactic and those whole and, and, and the album that that song came from. What would it have looked like if they were able to still continue from Russell and Rick being able to figure things out and their career being able to be successful? We've clearly seen how rappers and artists that look like them have went on to have very commercially successful careers in hip-hop music specifically. They were the most commercially successful artists on the label of the 80s. I don't think they ever quite recaptured that again, even though Intergalactic was a popular song. So I think they're the ones that, even though I think they're highly regarded, especially within New York and hip-hop and Def Jam circles, I don't know if they quite reached some of that potential that they probably could have had. Yeah, I think with Intergalactic, they were really poised to come back, you know, in, in into into this huge sort of mainstream success, and you know, they were following obviously in this long line of white artists profiting off of black music and and sort of like being more palatable in some ways to to you know mainstream uh, white audiences, um, you know, can talk about the the thinly veiled racism and, you know, kind of embedded in some of those audiences and why that happens, you know, all the way from Elvis to the Beastie Boys up to Eminem. But, um, but, you know, in a way it was Eminem who just kind of preempted them um, after Intergalactic by bursting onto the scene. And he was sort of like the white rapper that I think sucked up a lot of the oxygen. Um, and, and suddenly their stuff sounded very tame, right? Uh, you know, they were kind of the rebels. Um, and then you have Eminem and it's like, holy shit, they're not... <laughs> They're not like that, that, that kind of, uh, level of rebelliousness. Um, and, you know, I kind of wonder if, if, if Eminem took up a space that they might have gone on to occupy after intergalactic. Yeah. With that, anything else on Def Jam before we wrap things up? I think, I think we just about covered it all. I'm sorry to end on, on the somber note there, but, uh, but, uh, but no, I, I think, uh, I think that's all, I think that's all she wrote. Legendary run for this record label. I'm excited to see what this next decade brings as well. I, think it's in an interesting spot. And I do think that music in general is in an interesting spot right now, just with how major record labels work and behave. And it's been interesting to do this one and the Interscope one, because there's definitely some similarities, but I think there's some key differences too. But yeah, this was fun. Yeah, well, thanks, Dan. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.